1: But over the years, I've thought, short of being a doctor or some kind of healer or carer, there's not really a better way of uh, spending your life than making people more cheerful than they were before they listened to or watched the programme.
2: Welcome back to the Humorology Podcast with me, Paul Barros. Today, we have the award-winning producer of Blackadder... QI, spitting image and not the nine o'clock, doing the second part of our unbelievably interesting and wonderful conversation. Please remember to like, subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. When he's not acting as the creative force behind high-quality comedy-packed programmes, You can hear him as the presenter of BBC Radio 4's The Museum of Curiosity. Throughout his career, he has earned a plethora of BAFTAs for comedy and advertising, plus a Grammy and an Emmy. In 2011, he was appointed Commander of the British Empire for his legendary work producing television and radio. He politely professes to be Professor of Ignorance, but he sure knows plenty about producing a punchline and creating comedy gold. John, thank you so much. We're going to do part two.
1: It's good to be back, Paul. And I've worn worn the same tie and shirt as well.
2: Continuity is everything. Yeah. What is is the trick? You've worked with, I mean, many of, if not most of the, the greatest comics of the last 50 years. What is it that, their special source that makes them different and have you managed to pick some of that up
1: well that's what I wanted to do I set out when I left uh, university I didn't want to be a lawyer so I'll give myself a year and see if I can make it as a comic in some way so I used to put on plays and I used to act in those days and and, um, put on reviews and uh, do writing in my spare time and all that kind of stuff so I kind of missed my vocation, and I was actually sixty-one, which is nearly ten years ago, where I did my first one-man show in Edinburgh, which was terrifying. My wife thought I was going to commit suicide. I was so frightened. Um, and but once I got the thing written, and I went out in front of the audience, and that month was the best month of my whole life because I thought, this is I. What an idiot! I've been in the wrong job for forty years. This is what I should have done. This is what I do because you'll know this, Paul, that going out in front of a lot of people and making them laugh is there are very few experiences that are more fun than that. It is absolutely life enhancing, both for the audience and for the performer. And it's it's a public service, it's a joy, it's it's a very difficult thing to do, but when you do it well, it's just such a positive experience. and. Um, well, it's a drug,
2: isn't it? It's, a, it's the, the laugh is the drug, the acceptance, yeah. the thrill, you know, the, oh, the yeah.
1: endorphins and the sense of, I mean, you know, the sense of being alive and being completely there in the moment. And then there's a most peculiar thing that, like anything else when you're doing it well, you're in the zone, you're sort of not really, you're both there completely yeah, yeah. present and you're absent. You have no ego in that situation. You're just completely, and I do feel that not so much with scripted stuff that you've struggled to write and perfect, but when you're ad-libbing like you might on the radio show and you come up with a a one-liner and you get a big laugh, that's an interesting thing because I haven't taken credit for ideas. I wouldn't call any of the ideas that I have or that have me for 30 years are mine. They they come, nobody knows where ideas come from. It's one of the great Mm -hmm. mysteries. Humor is a great mystery. Where does it come from? What's it for? Music is another total mystery. We don't really know how it came about or what it's there for. And these, these mysteries of how you are most yourself when you're not there, when you are completely in the zone, in the state of flow, as they say, that's great. And that, when you, you're funny off the cuff, which is such a pleasant thing, but it catches me by surprise every time it's not Stephen Fry once said a great thing. He said, I don't really know what I'm going to say until my lips start moving. Uh, and that's the same with being funny, is that actually it's a gift. It comes from the sky. Like many songwriters, Harry will always say that. He's Mozart used to say it. old Gallagher said that. Elton Johnson. John McCartney says that. Yeah. yeah. You dream it or it comes to you from some other dimension and you just simply writing it down um and so again it's a privilege and it's what one of the things that is is one of the things that we should all try and do is be grateful if you have something like that, to be happy and grateful that you do have it.
2: As a psychologist, I'm really interested in that, because when I work with, um, I I get called in to uh, work with CEOs who have to make big speeches and things like that. And I always say uh, the first chapter in my first book was called It's All About Them, because if you are properly connected with the audience, your unconscious can do the work. Because, uh, as you probably know, your conscious mind can only hold between five and nine pieces of information at any one time. The unconscious holds millions. And that's when you're at your best, is when you are completely engaged. And that's what the art of, uh, I think, great humour or great comedy is. that You're completely engaged and allowing the unconscious to do the work. And, And that's where the magic happens if you like.
1: I think it's um, I've got a slightly different theory to that which is I did a second world man show in Edinburgh a couple of years later and that was about meaning as well what does it all mean what's what's everything how does it all fit together and what I think about consciousness is that um, that really the brain is like a, a radio what we think is we're a we're a a, a broadcast to where the BBC we have these ideas we make stuff we have ideas and um, you know we're very clever and some but actually we're just a radio set and that's why great art is coming from somewhere else so it's more like a superconscious. so you're tapped in most people who are not creative are sort of blocked off from the universal consciousness and creative people are sort of sick people who have a they, they have a, a hole, there's a hole in the ceiling, as it were, through which the creativity drips. Because the most the most brilliant people I've ever worked with, Rowan Atkinson is one, Peter Cook was another. They don't ever appear to do any actual work, you know what I mean? Rowan just turns up and is extraordinary. He's extraordinary. It comes, he doesn't really think about it. He thinks a lot, Ron. he's a very serious minded guy. Mm. But when he's working, it just arrives. And the same with Peter Cook. I never saw Peter Cook pick up a pencil even. He would just have a drink and start talking and out it would come. It was like, I say, he'd got a standpipe into an aquifer and there would this <laughs> gusher would come out all day until he went back to sleep again. You know, people often say to me, the reason I'm professor of ignorance at Southampton Southern University is they always ask me to be professor of comedy. And I say, but I don't know anything about comedy. I've been doing it for 45 years and I still don't understand the first thing about how it works. I mean, I know what's not funny. And one of the ironies and paradoxes about my job is most of it is knowing what's not funny and why it's not funny. And then we can start again. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm an editor. I'm an editor with power, I suppose.
2: That's an amazing talent to be able to do it in the same way that you talked about, Rowan and Peter Cook, is it, that ability to turn off the conscious mind and trust. It's the ultimate trust exercise in, that I know the funny will come mm-hmm. it's, and it's that ability to never go, oh, my God, what's next? You're yeah. there, you're present, you're completely embroidered, which I, I don't know if you watched the uh, Beatles documentary, The Eight and a Half Hours.
1: Um, I, no, I went to the premiere. That was oh, one of the great moments of my life, uh, Paul. So um, to A, to get asked, because I know the guy who runs Apple in the UK, John O'Clyde, and uh, he's a great friend of mine. So I went with one of our, well, our sort of, uh, development uh, uh, elf, Dan, so we went to see this, it was a fantastic evening amazing, and there was an after party to which we got asked and um, we're all sort of standing around Paul McCartney comes in, he's in an incredibly good mood because it's gone really well and it was a big risk they took and you know, yeah. nobody knew whether it was going to work and it worked brilliantly and so he was in a great mood and I was standing there with Alan Yentob, uh, behind me was Stephen Merchant and Paul comes into the group and I worked with Paul for three days in 1981, I think it was, working on a thing called Rupert and the Frog Song, trying to add extra jokes, me and Terry Jones and Douglas Adams. Oh, wow. So I just go over to Paul and I say, hey, Paul, you won't remember me, but he goes, John Lloyd. And I thought, wow, that is what a guy to remember. You wow, know, somebody who was a, a, a sort of nobody writer in 1981 from all those years ago, so that was fantastic. But it was it was an amazing piece of work, I thought.
2: I, it's an amazing piece of work. And what I thought was fascinating, and, and for all our listeners who aren't in music or comedy, I think it, it translates to how creativity works in any industry, is that they let it happen. They just kept doing it and trusting in the process and being there for each other and they created an atmosphere that was really comedic and funny and they're yeah, quipping yeah. and taking the Definitely. piss. And,
1: and yeah, I mean, there, there'll never be another band like the Beatles. There, there's, I mean, I, I just don't think there's anything to touch them ever. And well, I'm until waiting for Smith, obviously. Uh, we, we uh, had a, a plugger for a couple of years, a wonderful guy called Jeff who had worked with Paul McCartney. He's a scouser. I'd worked with Paul when he was much younger. And he said, compares Harry to, um, to Paul McCartney, Paul Simon, um, because of that thing is that the songs are such a pleasure to listen to and they keep coming, you know, and they're a bit like, he's also, genre is not something Harry does. You know, he's got all sorts of songs, all different kinds of genres. and uh, um, And I was gonna say, the other thing is, apart from Essex Builders, the other people who are great with humor at work are musicians. I mean, they love a joke and their their banter in in sessions and uh, rehearsals is absolutely terrific. We howl with laughter. And I don't know why they're so connected, you know, humor and music. As a comedy producer, you know, you've got a hit when you hear that bands like it. You know, we're not the nine o'clock News. The Rolling Stones listen to this, you know, watch this, you know.
2: Well, I think it's to do with rhythm, to be honest with yeah. you, because in order to tell a, a joke or to uh, to do good music, you have to hear the rhythm of the joke. You have to hear, because well, you've worked with thousands of comedians, as as have I, but it's all about, they hear the rhythm. They make the neural, they connect the neural pathways, but they hear the rhythm of it. And I think Uh, there's an overlap between them and frankly most musicians want to be comedians and most comedians want to be musicians there is that sort of uh, and so that bonding in the middle and I suppose it's ultimately I think it all comes down to rhythm
1: I think that's very very good and it's like um when you're working on a line, a, a joke, it's like poetry or it's like a song. Is like when you get it right, that's what it means. It's right. It's not a matter of opinion, that's right. Those things are not right and this is right. And I believe that we just haven't worked out the notation for comedy yet. There's no way of, and we still don't really know why things are funny. We know why they're not funny. But there's definitely, as I say, it's like a line of poetry or a a hook in a song. It's just correct, that's the end of it. And then there's no no arguing.
2: Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, when you try and, uh, you must have had this uh, with people who aren't naturally uh, funny and you go, if you leave it an extra beat, it will be funnier. You know, and that's, you know, musical notation in a sense is like, another beat and it'll be funnier, but some people don't hear that. And, th- and that's why it fails to be funny. Um, well, actually, do you think that everyone on the back of that is potentially funny or is it a gift given to the few?
1: Well, I think there's very few people who have no sense of humour. I have met the odd one, but, and and obviously, I think people are, you know, funnier than some people are funnier than others. Um, and of course, it depends on the context. You know, some people are very funny in private and not very good or can't do any sort of public speaking. You know, it's the, the biggest fear people have, as you will know, as a psychologist to 50 percent of Americans would literally rather die than give a speech. They would, you <laughs> know, right. they would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Jerry yeah, so Jerry Seinfeld, Seinfeld, right, yeah, yeah. I think it, but it's like a lot of things. Is it unless you catch it young, it's difficult to. It, I think it's very, it's very difficult to. And there are courses on comedy writing, for example. You can't teach somebody to be funny. You can teach them to tidy it up and be more logical and present the work better. But I think I don't know if it's innate or I don't think it. it it's something about your chi- early childhood. I think, and I would say that people who are consistently very funny are very unusual i mean i would say there are many more top flight brain surgeons in the world than there are top flight stand-up comics by quite a by a couple of orders of magnitude i would say but there are a lot of again it's something that you know class even gender all this ethnicity that it has no relevance to whether you're funny or not i remember once uh, years ago we live in the country we have an agar and a bloke came to fix the arga, and he worked out that I was a comedy producer and he said he was a welder in the yards shipyards with Billy Connolly and he said there were 50 blokes who were funnier than Billy I find that hard to believe but you can imagine you know the banter that went on amongst the welders and I remember in the days when female stand-ups are very unusual which is very recent I mean it's really only in the last 10 years that there's been an explosion of young women who want to do it. And you—you you, even back in the day, 20 years ago, you get criticised for not having enough women, and we'll see, well, there aren't any. You know, the, the intake at, let's say, the Edinburgh Festival, about 5% of the comics are female. And now it's yeah. very nearly 50-50, I think. Something's happened, whether great comedians like Joe Brand have set an example, I don't know. But, yeah. but women have always been just as funny as men in private it's in a different it's in a different kind of way and that's what always used to puzzle me is why if i want a really good laugh go out to lunch with a a bunch of women you'll have an absolute fantastic time but very few of them want to get up on stage and do it professionally and that's changed which is a very good thing i think
2: Well, I think it's changed because of the bravery uh, and I use the term advisedly um, of Joe Brand, um, because I started working with Joe at the Comedy Store in Leicester Square. And there were, you know, there were a handful of women, but hardly any of them could properly do the midnight show where you quite often went on at two o'clock in the morning to, you know, you remember the days where the audience went to heckle, and it was a very tough, and Joe talks about it, in fact, talked about it on this show, that because she was a psychiatric nurse, she said she used to get worse heckles during the day in her day job. So she she had that um, facility to rise above that, but it was very hard, and I think, I think women are, are nicer to each other whereas men grow up you know chiding each other constantly and maybe there's something about that 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 gives them a facility later on I don't know what do you think?
1: Difficult to get into gender politics but I, I think I think a lot of men are very disconnected I think the the men that I get on with best you find out within five minutes you think This guy has either been in therapy or he's a Buddhist, you know, or he's had a midlife crisis and started thinking about things. Any woman, the average woman, almost all women, the minute they start talking, they're straight into the big stuff, aren't they? You know, illness and children and, you know, the big things and men are, you know, behind this pathetic cardboard castle of, you know, sport and banter and, you know, trying to uh, pretend you're not unhappy. Um, and it's, again, it's a terrible waste of, uh, of, the, of, of that being disconnected. And, and I, I don't know whether comedy is one way out of that. Because as you said earlier, I mean, comedy is a great thing for joining people up. Music is a great thing for joining people up. You know, conversation should be, a, a great conversation should be, ah, oh, there's connections all over the place. You know, like the first time we spoke, he said, this is ridiculous, we've never met. You know, we seem to, there's so much in common here. And it's something that I certainly do. One of the things that Harry and I share is we like to talk to everybody. You know, if you're talking a mini-cab driver or a bus driver or just a bloke cleaning the street, you know, you talk to anyone, it's extraordinary what, what, how much it improves your life because you just learn these fantastic stories. Everybody has a story you know, and uh, it, it just makes you feel better. The fact that you go through life, not being frightened of everyone else, but of thinking, I wonder what that person's got to say.
2: I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the, that's in, um, the first time we spoke, we, we spoke about the, this. My son, Sam, very similar to Harry, has grown up just going out chatting to anyone because and interested being interested you know your company's you know quite interesting limited being interested in other people i think is the, is the best way to connect and also get on for all of our listeners who are thinking oh well what's this got to do with my job or my relationship with my children i think it's the, it's the core of everything be interested I remember yeah. being skiing with my friends, and my friends. Uh, I I went over to the other side, and I was chatting to a guy who was sweeping out the bar, and I was there for forty-five minutes. And they went, "What are you doing?" I went, "This guy's fascinating. He's come from the Slovak." republic and he used to be a professor over there and now he's doing this and then it has got a fascinating and by bonding with uh, this person i got so much but some people don't realize that you you can learn so much but also get so much more love and yeah. and laughter from connecting
1: yes it's uh, i i just don't understand how anybody ever gets bored i mean well... It's just baffling to me that people can be ever bored, that there's so much to think about, so much to look at, so many people to talk to. It's just the ignorance. Is it? It's, yeah. Hmm.
2: Well, we just, uh, general ignorance, which is, uh... yeah. yeah.
0: (laughs) Planning for your next trip?
1: Bombas, big comfort for
0: everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
2: No, um, I, I, I want to get back to humor because... Yeah. Um, um, Do you find that you can laugh at yourself easily? And was that always the way? Because you you talked about being known as being a Mr. Grumpy earlier, was it harder to laugh at yourself at that time? And do you think it's important?
1: Yes, I mean, I think you should laugh at yourself. I'm not sure how good I am at it, actually. It's, um, I think I'm probably quite sensitive to that, and certainly was uh, historically. Um, But yes, we should laugh at ourselves in particular and and in general, you know, to not, you know the current vogue for taking offense at everything rather than you know a bit of teasing doesn't doesn't isn't so terrible most of the time but you know I think it's well I think there should be more laughter you know everywhere you know I think there should be more laughter at work and more laughter you know in in the family and 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 you know my kids will do that thing oh no I, I was when I'm making a point at lunch or whatever always wave a fork and they all do that Ah, he's waving his fork again so I don't mind that but um no I don't think I do mind uh when people tease me about things I'm I'm okay I think I I can probably cope it's it's so interesting the question of whether humor is my dad died in 2001 and um it was really shocking and sudden and and surprising and you know, I had to organise the first funeral I'd ever done as I'm the oldest, and um I thought uh, for the... uh After, when we're having the wake, I'll, I'll write a speech about him. So I wrote this speech, and I said some very funny things in it. And then just before I was due to give it, I didn't tell anyone I was going to give it, I suddenly realised that all the jokes were against him. They were all about, you know, he's... The things that he uh, made mistakes or falling through the roof when he was trying to shovel snow out of the rafters and I thought I can't do this because it sounds like I don't like him which wasn't at all the case I was very fond of him but I just thought there were jokes at his expense that didn't seem right to me I don't know why that s- suddenly occurred to me I've literally never told that to anyone I don't think.
2: But you can do some things which were uh, jokes about because m- my father died uh, six and a half years ago and I had to do that same thing of writing mm. the eulogy and uh, it's it's very much about it's about them so you have to bring out their foibles but it's it's done with love isn't yeah. it
1: uh, the best eulogies I've ever uh, seen uh, are, are part, are part or, you know that you want the whole person so uh, We had a memorial for John Sessions the other day. Um, Great, great friend to go back a long way with him. Brilliant actor, very troubled person, but kind as you kind as you like. And all the speeches, he and his lot was brilliant. Um, Stephen Fry was exceptionally funny Um, and they were all how much they loved him, how brilliant he was and what a walking disaster, (laughs) you know. Uh, all his his foibles and craziness and that was what made it so we all loved him despite his ways you know despite that we still loved him. Isn't that what makes people
2: special is 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 their idiosyncratic natures and the, the the all those things isn't that what people are we love them despite nobody's perfect are they?
1: No, and I think if when you do meet uh, somebody who appears to be perfect, it's slightly intimidating and 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 a bit weird, frankly. Yeah. Um, I remember, so I go on a yoga retreat once a year, which all the family are into, into yoga because it sort of saved our lives in various ways. And uh, Neville, our yoga teacher, He was a Buddhist monk for three years. He's a guy from Oxford, very nice guy. And I thought, this is the closest person I've ever met to someone who's genuinely enlightened. You know, he's kind, he's funny, he's gentle, he's very good at his job. He's just so centred as a person. And then he had kids. And he said, oh, John, this is... Oh, that's and suddenly is a human being and now yeah. okay I can love you completely Neville because now you know because you can you can present quite well as a single person as long as you're not physically ill and so on you, know, you I don't think anyone can do that as a, you know as a as a mother or father being a parent is a very very difficult calling and and it's frustrating and it makes you frightened and angry and uh, and all those things so he's sort of become a much more rounded person now and it, he's, he's not intimidating anymore. I was going to say about the yoga thing, interestingly, in terms of laughter being the panacea for everything, is when my wife dragged me along, she did it because she has many disease, i vertigo, so she's got a balance problem in her ear and yoga's very good for it. I mean, 15 years ago, she was falling down like a sack of potatoes in the street and I thought she was not going to be with us for very long and the yoga has has made her... She still got it, but oh. she can control it. Yeah. And she dragged me along because I was very out of condition, very overweight, drinking too much. I was a mess and I needed to get a sort of detox. And we started going on these yoga retreats. And because I was, a lot of people in the class uh, were very fit and very good at doing yoga. And I felt ashamed and overweight and I couldn't do it. I was, you know, giving up, very depressed and cross. And so my defense mechanism was humor. I used to make jokes about it uh, mainly against myself. And so I think our yoga class, I'm not saying it's unique, but I've never heard of another one like it. It is incredibly funny. There's a great deal of serious philosophy talks and thoughtful, a lot of kindness and generosity and lots of jokes. So often the entire class is howling with laughter when they're doing downward dog or something like that. And another thing is, I would think, another great therapy, I think there should be such a thing there isn't, is Scottish dancing therapy, which, you know, my wife is a Scot. We go to Scotland every new year. And I think Scottish dancing has got everything. It's got rhythm, as you said. It's got, you know, it's got music, which is great. It's got fun, which is great. It's got learning, because you're always trying to learn a new set of steps. And, of course, because most people are hopeless at it, you laugh a great deal. And there's hugs. I mean, it's got everything. I think if you did Scottish dancing every day, everyone would be just fantastically happy.
2: Well, there you go. That's that's our new business, Scottish Dancing (laughs) Therapy with Paul and John.
1: Yeah,
2: that's brilliant. If I asked you to write a business case for humour, what would you include in it, John?
1: Uh, Well, that would be the the easiest question, I think, that you you've asked me thus far, because I can I I can actually, actually got the facts and figures for this. Okay, so. For about 12 years, I may have mentioned I was a commercial director. Um, I never wanted to be a director. It looked like a very difficult job to me. Directors I worked with were always shouting and screaming and firing the prop man and having nervous breakdowns and becoming alcoholics and things. And it was obviously the, the, um, the amazing pressure. So, But somebody offered me a job to direct an ad. And after about four hours, I thought, rather well, like doing that one-man show I mentioned, I thought I've wasted my life. I should have been doing this at 20. You know I, directing suits me so well it fits me like a glove i was never any good as a producer I'm, I'm pretending to be a producer i hate firing people i can't read a budget to save my life directing that's great with actors i love writers you know set designers and and problem solving you know so i after this first one the second year I was a director, I won a prize for the best ad of the year from a thing called Creative Circle. I couldn't understand how that, that had happened. And I did some very um, good stuff, particularly with Barclay Card with Rowan Atkinson. And um, one of the things I loved about, because I'd done lots of telly and I didn't, wasn't trying to prove anything, about my abilities as a director, what interested me about advertising is how do you sell the product? How do you use the mean the humour as a means to sell what then? I always used to say to the agencies, you know, so what's the brief? And they go, why do you need to know what the brief is? Why don't you just make it funny? I said, no, I need to know, you know, how the bank works or, you know, what, what's in the lager, you know, what, what are they trying to sell? Why are they, what are they trying to get across? What's the message? They thought I was crazy, but they, it worked. And I was, I wouldn't claim to be very good at many things, but I was very, very good at the whole business of making ads products used to fly off the shelves and Barclay card was the apotheosis of this the first three years that I did they won all the prizes but it was voted in some magazine the most effective television advertising campaign ever in Britain wow. and this is how effective it was uh, the second year, we were out in Bora Bora in Tahiti shooting a couple of ads. The one with the dinghy, if you ever remember that, where he loses binoculars. And there's yes. the one where the doctor's got snake bite on his willy. And two very wonderful ads. We were out there for about three weeks. And um, uh, one night, the account woman had a bit too much to drink and told me how successful the ads were you don't want to tell the director that because they'll want to charge more money so but she got drunk and she said did you know that these ads are making barclays bank half a billion pounds a year that they didn't know they had half a billion every year one of the ways it worked is because people would see the ad and they would um and and laugh, obviously. And uh, and when they got their Barclay card statement, their bill, they go, Oh, did you see that one? Did you see the one of the, the, you know, the guy when he's you know going down the lift and this happens? And and they forget to pay the bill because they get so talking about the ad, they put the bill aside, and then six weeks later, oh my god, and they were paying all this excess interest. Oh that was one gosh. of the ways they did it, and in, increased the sales as the most expensive credit card in the country, but increase their sales massively. It used to cost them I once asked the uh, marketing director Alan, okay so basically costing the ads cost about half a million a year uh, to make two of them usually or three sometimes. How much do you spend on the media? in other words buying the media spaces oh about 12 million so it's, so you're basically saying uh, 12 and a half million pounds they cost to make and they're making half a billion. I just worked that out on my calculator last night. That is a return on investment of 4,000%. It's 40 times they were making. So if that isn't a good case for comedy in business, I don't know what is. And, and I did this a lot. We, we did a very successful series for Red Rock Cider with Leslie Nielsen. I did um, Abbey National with Alan Davis for years and years. Harry Enfield and I did some fantastic work for Dime Bar. And product used to just fly off the shelves because it's like, you know, you know because I was very interested in the clients, I used to get on very well with the clients. And, you know, and I would turn up in a suit and the agencies would go, are you mad? I said, look, I'm a public school boy. When I go to a meeting with it, you know, 30 people I wear a suit and tie that's the way I'm built I don't wear my leather jacket it's rude and so all the marketing guys and women all in their gray suits and and so on would think oh he's like he's like us he's actually interested in what's in the lager you know he cares about how the car performs you know he's not just in it to show off and win prizes and I found that absolutely fascinating Again, the the problem-solving thing. How do you take this thing that's not selling and make it sell? So there was a very uh, one very successful I did was for Boddingtons beer as takeaway beer, you know Boddingtons, and it was called Boddingtons. Do you remember those? The cream of Manchester.
2: That's right. So with the the Boddingtons. That was one of mine. I did the very first
1: one. Um, and it was uh, set, and we made what looked like the coolest New York loft with um, in Manchester, and it was very, very beautifully designed and uh, and a very funny thing where there's this, this woman putting um, cream on her face, you know, oh, and right. then yeah. you see her hand go into the beer and it's, you know, Boddington's the cream of Manchester, and then her boyfriend comes in and he says, hey, you smell gorgeous tonight, pet. <laughs> <laughs> And then it was done, but what was clever about it is it was done to make Mancunians look incredibly sexy and cool. And when they used to show this ad in pubs in Manchester, it used to get cheered. And it took the brand from the number 14 takeaway beer in the country to number one, like overnight.
2: Well, there you go. Funny equals money.
1: It does. Absolutely. Quality, absolutely pays dividends um and, and and comedy especially
2: brilliant well we've reached the point in the show uh, where we're going to do quick fire questions <laughs> okay <laughs> quick fire questions who's the funniest business person that you've met
1: uh, jimmy mulville who runs hat very funny like griff reese jones yep. is an extremely uh good financial operator and and little in his own little way. And is hilarious, one of the best anecdotalists ever. Richard Curtis runs a big thing. He's extremely funny public speaker. I did meet a few sort of chief execs in my time in advertising, but I don't remember, I always remember that if you get right to the top, that person's usually rather wonderful, brilliant, got plenty of time, listens, not at all a bully. The middle ranks are often quite difficult. The people at the top are good, but I don't remember them being particularly funny. And then other people, again, I don't know if you call them business, but my boss is at the BBC, David Hatch, who ran comedy and then the whole of radio was a brilliantly funny man. Jim Moyer, who's still with us, who ran Radio 2 and BBC Light Entertainment for a long time. He's also funny.
2: David Hatch and I have a, a connection, which is when I was 11 years old, they wanted ordinary children from ordinary backgrounds, not stage school children, to do a BBC Radio 4 show called From Us to You. Mm. And I was one of the five chosen to do wow. it. So I worked with David Hatch and Simon Brett. You know
1: Simon as well? Simon and, uh, well, Simon's my great friend. He, you know, I'm, I'm a godfather to one of his kids and he, he and David were the people who recruited me to the BBC.
2: What book makes you laugh, John?
1: Lucky Jim's a very funny book, uh, pro- probably terribly politically incorrect now. I don't know, but I haven't read it for years and years. And, you know, plug my book, The Meaning of Life. I still find that funny. It's a
2: brilliant book.
1: That uh, Douglas and, Douglas Adams and I wrote in, in the early 80s. And uh, that, um, that tickles me. But uh, no, I don't. It's a bit of a busman's holiday, reading funny books. You know, hmm. oh, I don't know. Well, even, even going to see comedy, I'll go to see, you know, Bill Bailey or Sean Locke because there was so sad about Sean. So sad. But, but, but go and see friends to support them, you know, uh, Rob Brydon or Jimmy Carr or whatever. But I wouldn't. Fortunately, somebody else has to go and see the, all the young up and coming comics as their job, which they're happy to do. But I would, you know, I say it's too much like work to me.
2: No, I get it. You mentioned Jimmy Carr earlier on, who I think proves that fact beautifully, because he, he takes very, very difficult topics and approaches them in a way that makes, that makes them funny. I think that, that's a real art. And that's I just wondered if there was anything personal that you think. But I, 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 I'm with you. I think if it's approached in the right way, with the right attitude, anything can be funny.
1: Well, I think Jimmy certainly does that. And what's so amazing about him is that, you know, he makes jokes about Paralympians and they adore him. You know, the thing is Jimmy's Jimmy's a very good man. I mean, I, he's a very good friend. He's a great person. He's somebody who's developed very well. He's had his crisis very early in his twenties when he lost his faith and, you know, walked out of his job and went into therapy and, rebuilt himself and he's now a bit like you becoming something of a psychologist you know he's writing books on how to live better and he's got a little boy and he's happy it's and he's the most generous person you've got to see Jimmy with I remember he used to be very good friends with Stephen Hawking most unlikely thing yeah. and Stephen used to come to Jimmy's parties which are the best in London in his wheelchair with his carer and you know obviously he looked uh, as as he looked, but when Jimmy went to speak to him, his eyes twinkled like little diamonds. It was so, and his little smile came on his face. It was so moving. And Jimmy, would te- you know, tease him, make yeah. jokes. You know,
2: that's yeah. well, that's beautiful, isn't it? Because actually, when you know you are very close to a person, you can tease. You can chide, you can play with somebody, and people yeah. love it because it's done in the right spirit.
1: I've, oh, I love I've that. seen. I've for ten years, I was the sort of um, a talent booker for a, a show we used to put on at the New Theatre in Oxford, in aid of, of a children's hospice called Helen Douglas House. And I used to, you know, pull strings to get Rowan and Jimmy and people like that. And I remember how kind Jimmy was to ordinary people who particularly, you know, disabled people or kids or whatever. He's always got the time and he treats everybody exactly the same. Friendly, teasing, respect. Beautiful. But I was going to share with you this thing. You've probably never even seen this. We did this book. Uh, Richard Curtis and I put this together for comic relief at the definitive adder books with and it's got all the scripts in there, but I did the bits in the middle, which are the um, little extra bits. And talking about silly words, this is um, Prince Regent's, you know, a bit of a fop, as you know, he lorries Prince Regent. Yeah. His laundry list, Turtle and Son, Gentlemen's Launderers and Spruces, Three Bun Lane, Clarkenwell. <laughs> so this, and it's got all these, so you've got Sporan's none. Kimonos, informal, three. Kimonos, foul weather. Shoulderettes, three. Scanties, 44. Folder rolls, two. Skimpies, nine. Underskimpies, nine. Overskimpies, four. Arbroath Smokies. Halterneck swagger flopsies, sa daisies Bossom-hearties. Log warmers. Boleros. Bobby knickers. Varsity roasters. Rap rascals. Bunny lariats. Todgerillos. Billows, bufflers. Bung nasties. Ossops. Otter tops. Hair shirts, nil sarongs, four, squeamishes, nine, undersqueamishes, eight, squirters, dinner dirndles, night panties, <laughs> club dorises, slip goslings fur, slip goslings tweed, blouses, 52, chemises, chive clamps, hug bunters, dress nancies, swallow-breasted port scathos, scugs 50, scrotals 10, nipple loops, two. <laughs> it just goes on. That makes me laugh. I, I just can't, pathetic. Complete oh, it's non-
2: superb! Absolutely superb! Oh God, that does, that that is hilarious. <laughs> what sound makes you
1: laugh? What sound? Yeah. Um. What well, I was thinking, when I was very small, when I sort of first went to prep school, and I was sort of, you know, um. Quite, quite shy I suppose and uh, I had to read out something in geography uh, which contain, contained the expression wood pulp was about you know logging in Canada or something and I mispronounced it as wood plup <laughs> and I just completely lost it I couldn't stop laughing for the whole of the rest of the lesson uh, I don't know why that why the sound of plup makes me laugh plup, um,
2: the sound of plup which is uh, <laughs> a, a lovely <laughs> album, and, uh, to... <laughs> <Yeah. Plup. laughs> the name of waiting for smith's new album sound of (laughs) two grown men giggling um and finally desert island gag number two if you'd be so kind
1: well this is my current favorite um because it's sort of top quite topical and it's about this uh uh, two old couples uh who've uh just come out of lockdown and they uh they go for a walk in the park and uh one old chap uh says to the other he said um we uh we went out to uh, had a delightful evening uh the missus and I the other night we went to this i believe they're called gastro pubs he' said, oh very nice it's, it's, uh, Yes, he said, a very, uh, very pleasant congenial atmosphere, excellent food and, and very good company. Indeed, I would highly recommend it. And the other chap says, oh, well, the, and what is the name of this establishment, if I may ask? And the chap says, oh dear, oh, uh, oh dear, no, it's gone, uh, oh, it's gone quite, you have to help me out, it's gone quite under my head, I can't remember. He says, uh, he said, well, uh, it's like a flower, uh, which is like, uh, and it's got these like often red and white, sometimes pink, and it's got these like fawns sticking out the side, isn't it? What's that? And the says, oh, well, that'd be a rose, wouldn't it? There you go. Thanks very much. He says, Rose, what was the name of that restaurant we went to the other <laughs> night? <laughs> oh, absolutely
2: superb. John Lloyd, thank you so much for being a wonderful guest on the
1: Humorology podcast. Thank you, podcast. Paul. It's been great fun.
2: The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros and produced by Simon Banks. Music by Steve Hayworth, creative direction by Les Hughes, and additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky Production.